The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus, our fourth week on this great book. Next week, it's Leviticus, and I can't wait. My wife has been telling me for years, I've just got to sit and listen to you talk about Leviticus. So I've been gearing her up, readying her. It's coming. We're in the third section of Exodus in our journey through Jesus' Bible. In Exodus 19... The story of the book moves from redemption to relationship. In Exodus 19 through 24, God establishes his covenant with them. In chapter 24, he actually sprinkles blood on the people, uh, Moses does, on God's behalf. Just like God consecrated the priests, he consecrates the people. And he sets them apart to be priests an entire kingdom of priests on behalf of the nations. Through you, Abraham, the world will be blessed. God's goal to see himself exalted, imaged, through a people preserving his likeness, calling them to fill the earth, multiply and subdue it. Adam and Eve sinned, but God's passion for his glory would not be halted. In a sea of curseness he sets apart Abraham he says through you through your generations I'm going to raise up this royal redeemer put your hope in my promise and that's where we are we're in the book of Exodus and God is now fulfilling his promises he's expanded Israel like he promised that he would and now he's reaffirming the relationship with them, all for the purpose of the nations, and all in sight of the ultimate promise for the royal male deliverer. We're in a hard set of chapters for two reasons. One, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, seven chapters, and then 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, six more chapters, 13 chapters of thrilling, edge of your seat, here's how you build the tabernacle, and voila, it was made. (laughs) It's kind of those pages where we're in our devotional reading and we're like, come on, where's the story? And I hope by the end of today, you'll have a clear picture for why God would give us 13 chapters of building instructions. What are they here for? And why right in the middle of them do we find this narrative, we call it the golden calf episode, of Israel spurning God's presence. The mountain is burning with His glory. I have come that you might fear me so that you would not sin because it's in the context of holiness where God's going to be imaged. When people look at Israel, they're going to see God's important to you. God's the king of your heart. He's going to be displayed. It's only going to happen if you fear God, and the fear of God is only going to happen if you take His presence seriously. I've come in this glory fire cloud, this thunderstorm, so that you might fear me. I've disclosed myself and my will in a way you can understand so that you would fear me, so that you will not sin. And yet, while the mountain is burning, Israel's down at the base, crafting a golden calf, and saying, behold, this is your God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a lot of text for me to get through this morning, and I'm asking for your help. Yet, regardless of how well it is presented, you won't get the glory you deserve unless I do this dependently and unless these people have eyes to see and ears to hear in a way that changes them. For the glory of your Son, 
who's anticipated in this text. For the fame of your name which is proclaimed in this text. Show up today. In Jesus I pray. Amen. In our Bible, this place called the tabernacle, which when it gets into the land will become a building. It'll change from a tent to a building. This place called the tabernacle has many different terms, and from them we can get a sense for what its purpose was. It's called the dwelling place. It's not where you or I would have slept. It's where God resided. His presence was there. In fact, in the holy place, it's set up with lights on and bread on the table. Very intentionally, I think, to tell Israel, God's at home and he's ready for fellowship. People would come to bring their sacrifices to this place. What are they doing? They're they're offering the king his own food. He deserves this. And then God would say, you can stick around and I'll let you have a portion of my meal. Eat at my banqueting table. It's the dwelling place of God. It's also called the holy place or the sanctuary. This is not the normal realm of the earth. Because God is there, it set it apart. It was the center of God's presence on earth. And that which was closest to it was called holy because God was utterly distinct from everything else. So at the center was the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And then as you move outside, there's spheres of holiness so that the tabernacle itself was more holy than Israel's camp, but Israel's camp was more holy than all the nations surrounding them. The tent of meeting or the tent of appointment. When Israel wanted to encounter God, they came to meet him. To, they were drawn to his presence. And Moses or one of the priests would mediate that presence. This was the place of appointment. It's amazing that God, who's overseeing all things from the beginning of time to the end, would make moments in his schedule to actually relate with sinners. It's amazing. This is the place of meeting God. The house of Yahweh. It's an interesting title. We know from the dedication of the temple prayer of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8, God doesn't live in temples built with hands. He's everywhere. And yet, the tabernacle is called his house. It even has a throne. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. And he dwelt there in a unique way. And we want to get our hands around that. It's also called the Palace of Yahweh because in the mind of Israel, they perceived God as the ultimate sovereign over all things. What's his name? Yahweh, the causer of of all. He causes all things to be. He's the chief, the preeminent one, the sovereign, not only over Israel, but God wanted to get it into their system over the entire world. And in this book, he's proved it. Every one of the curses battling Egyptian gods, showing that it's God as he deconstructed creation Reversing the process, bringing deterioration, he was the one in charge of it. I am the one. What's his name? Yahweh. Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? Ten times I'll tell you who I am. It's very interesting how God talks about this place. And it's very helpful for all of us to think about it in the way he describes it. Exodus chapter 25 is where we begin today. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they uh, take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him shall receive the contribution from me. They're going to bring it in for the sake of the sanctuary. 
verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. On the earth, I'm going to come inhabit a residence. Now notice verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make. Now look at that very carefully. You're up on the mountain, Moses, 40 days and 40 nights. During this time, I'm unpacking for you a vision. I'm going to show you something. And I want you to build on earth a pattern of what you've seen. I'm showing you the real. What's on earth is a pattern. He's seeing something on Mount Sinai. Verse 40 of the same chapter. See that you make everything I've told you after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. God had the blueprints. Or, I think more likely... He gave Moses a glimpse of the real, the heavenly reality where God is seated on the throne. Moses saw it, and God said, I'm going to take you through this, and I want you to build on earth a model of the pattern that I've just emulated for you. When I went to Israel four and a half months, got engaged in, when did I get engaged? June? It was a long time ago. So June of 1993, I get engaged, and she said yes. In August of 1993, I head off to Israel for four and a half months. With me was a picture book. Now, I didn't take the effort to find the picture book, so my wallet is going to be the example. This is my picture book, pretend. With me went this picture book, Every Journey Around Israel, my four-day backpacking trip on the Sea of Galilee, my three-day backpacking trip along the coast of um, the Mediterranean Sea, all of the classroom, uh, historical geography, times we went all over the country, this was always with me. My fiancé was back home. I set up the opportunity for me to fly into Chicago five days earlier than she expected me. I got picked up by her parents, and I come up... Oh, i, I got to elaborate the image a little more. So I'm in Israel with this picture book. Everywhere I go, she's there with me. I look at her often. You want to see me? Come here. This is my girl. I, I would show her to everyone. I called her my blessing. And sometimes I just hold her pictures on my heart. Sometimes, yes, I would even kiss the pictures. Because I missed her. Home I come, into the van. It's 10.30 at night. She's freaking out because she did find out that I was coming home. And we were five hours later than she ever anticipated. And she thought for sure there was a plane crash and she'd been watching the news and her eyes were red from crying. And I walk into the room and she sits, she's sitting on the chair. She doesn't get up. She's exhausted from all the emotional stress of waiting for this guy who didn't think she knew I was coming. And I walked into the room and I took out my picture book and I turned my back and I just started, oh, Therese, you're so great. You're beautiful. You're mine. You said yes. And she's sitting right behind me. How many think I did that? No, I did not. Because when the reel came, scrap the picture book. She's there. The tabernacle, from this text, everything associated with it, all the priests, all the sacrifices, the whole clean and unclean, holy and common spectrum, all of that, this text says, is but a picture of a reality. We have to think about it that way. And anticipate the possibility that when the real comes, the picture will no longer be needed. Hear the writer to the Hebrews. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things themselves 
sorry, the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are merely copies of true things, but in heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. When the real comes, we don't need the picture. And that's one of the reasons why we see changes when we get to the New Testament. But believe me, we can learn a lot by looking at pictures. So don't run through your 13 chapters. Let's see what we can find out. So you've got your handout, and I've given you a picture of the tabernacle. And while you look at that, I'm going to open up my notes. The tabernacle was always to be oriented in an east-west axis. It's intriguing. All the temples in the ancient world are this way. They're always on an east-west axis, but there's an interesting element. We don't know of any evidence that any temples outside of Israel ever had curtains. Why? Because they had a golden idol in the Holy of Holies, and all the doorways of the temple in every group needed to be wide open so that when that sun rose over the eastern hill, the light would shoot down and the God would awake. Israel's tabernacle was on an east-west axis, but God makes it absolutely clear every single door into the Holy of Holies is to have a curtain so that when you see light, you know it's real and not reflective. That the source of that light is not emanating from anywhere else, it's emanating from itself. The outer court was 50 cubits by 100 cubits. So roughly 150 feet by 75 feet. Now what that does is it puts the tabernacle into two equally proportionate squares. And what happens to be in the center of each of those proportions is massively significant theologically. In the center of the first portion is the bronze altar upon which the sin offerings for the community were burned. And at the center of the second square is the Ark of the Covenant where the Holy of Holies sat. Do you think that's telling anything to Israel? That if they want to reach the throne of God, they have to start through the altar. But what's amazing is that God would actually give them a setup where He is on the throne of all things, would actually allow, provide a way for a relationship with this people. It's intricately set up with a number of gates and guardians. The farthest place from the people is the Holy of Holies. They move in from the east and there's curtains and there's the altar and there's a a laver where there's a basin of water to be clean and then the people can be in all that section, but then the priests can o- are the only ones who can go in the holy place. And then there's the most holy place. Everything has walls and curtains and gates because what's in the middle is holy and it's protecting them. It's giving them a picture of the seriousness of which, uh, of this God of His presence, of the relationship. And every detail we get in the first seven chapters, just read it. You don't have to try necessarily to put it all together. I've, I've tried to do that here a little bit for you so you can get an image. Um, but just know that every bit of it is designed to say, God is holy, take Him seriously. God is holy, you are not, and yet he opens the door for a relationship with him. He's provided the way. Every single detail in the text, just let it encourage your heart, even if you're wondering why are they having to do this? What's the point of all this? What's very striking is that the priests themselves have a specific uh, 
outline of how they're to dress. We're told that it is so that they might display glory and beauty. The priests are reflectors of God. What's really amazing is that as you start on the outside of the priestly outfit, you've got a rougher look. And then as you get down to their underwear, every layer of their clothing has a higher level of uh, beauty so that there might be goat hair on the outside and there's linen closest to their being. What's even more amazing is that the structure of the priestly outfit matched exactly the structure of the um, materials used in the structure of the tabernacle. So that it was those that were the farthest from the Holy of Holies that were the roughest, and then as you move in, into the inner sanctum, the materials become more and more purified. So you move from bronze on the outside to gold in the inner, inner layer. You move from goat hair on the outside to silk and fancy linen in the Holy of Holies. And it, it matches the priestly outfit. Because they're the image of God. And God's residing in the midst of them. And that which is closest to God is the most holy. And the priests themselves displayed this holiness in the way they were dressed. A series of texts. Why don't you have your Bible open? We're going to begin in chapter 25. A series of texts that helped... Oh, you want to get a glimpse of this one. This is a real place. This is a model of the model. But it was a real place. This is a model you could go and visit. It's in southern Israel, right down by the Red Sea, by a lot, in a region Israel was during their wanderings, moving from Mount Sinai up to Kadesh Barnea. They would have stopped in this valley. And it would have looked a lot like that, with the mountains around and the structure set up. So you see the altar, you see the basin, you see the holy place, and within it, the Holy of Holies. As we walk through these chapters between 25 and 31, it, the text gives us an, an idea for why God is doing what He's doing. Why is He setting up the tabernacle? So, we're just going to walk through. I've made quick summaries. You've got them down here at the bottom of your sheet. And I'm just pulling them straight out of the text. And we're going to look at these texts. So number one, the first revealed purpose. It's a meeting place with God by means of atonement that's going to allow Israel to hear God's word. To actually hear it. Here's our, here's our text. Here's where I'm getting it. Chapter 25, 21, and 22. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. The mercy seat. It's where the blood of the Day of Atonement sacrifice would be sprinkled. We're going to come back to that because Jesus is called the mercy seat in Romans chapter 3. We've translated it propitiation. But it's the exact same word for mercy seat right here. He is the spot where the blood is sprinkled and upon which God's throne sits and allows him to relate with humanity. And I think, did you talk about the mercy seat? Yeah, Brad did when I was gone uh, last fall. So put a mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I'll speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of God. Commandments are blessings. It's about following. It's about life, because where God is, is life. And so he's saying, follow me. To run from God is to move toward death. And so God's saying, I'm going I'm to speak to you and clarify for the people how they're to stay nearest to me. And I'm going to do it from the mercy seat. And even the language is, is screaming, you don't deserve it, but I'm giving this to you. Number two, a context for Israel to be brought to God, God's regular remembrance. 
God wanted Israel to be brought to his remembrance often. So this is what we read. Exodus 28, 29, and 30. Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in his breastpiece of judgment on his heart. And when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before Yahweh regularly. So as the picture shows, you've got a priest and every one of those uh, special stones has engraved on it the name of one of the tribes of Israel. And God set up this system, he says, so that you might wear Israel on your breastpiece and therefore bring them to my remembrance often. Now, it's called the breastpiece of judgment, and when it mentions the Urim and Thummim, most likely these were stones, and we know that they were the means by which God would render judgment for Israel, clarifying for the priests when they're helping in rendering judgment, is this right or is this right? Is he telling the truth or is he telling the truth? Should we go up against the armies or shouldn't we go up against the armies? They would pray, and God would answer it appears that one of the stones, the yes stone or the no stone, would glow. And the priests would come before the Lord to intercede on their behalf and to seek God's direction regarding the cases in Israel. And as they would come, God would remember. He'd remember Sarah. He'd remember Lee. He'd remember Keith. He'd remember his people. And he would do so through the lens of the sacrifice and there would be mercy, mercy, mercy. Number three, the means for Israel through their sacrifices to be declared holy to Yahweh and thus escape his wrath. Chapter 28, 36 through 38, hear what it says. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet. Put it on the plate, holy to Yahweh. And then I want you to take that plate and fasten it on your turban. This is the high priest hat. And on the hat is a plate and it says, holy, holy to Yahweh. I'm set apart for him. I've been reconciled. Things have been made right. I'm on his side, not against him. And it shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So out in the court, the people would bring their sacrifice. They would lay their hands on the head of the sacrifice, thus identifying with it. It had to be a sacrifice without blemish. Thus saying that the death that this animal is about to die was not for its own failures. But they put their hands on it and thus you'd be identifying with it. This animal represents me. And then the priests would take the sinful person represented in the beast and would slaughter the beast. And the blood would be sprinkled on the altar and it would be taken in and sprinkled on the altar of incense and the incense would rise in front of the temple curtain and it would be pleasure to the Lord. And then one time a year, that blood would actually be taken into the curtain and sprinkled on the mercy seat. Every time the priests enter into the holy place, standing on behalf of the people, representing the people, they would be bearing the people's guilt and declaring, God, you've satisfied your wrath on this one. Your wrath has de- been dealt with. The, pre- the, the, the animal is dead. And, and all the while, though, the priests are bearing the guilt of the people. They're actually eating. The only offering that wasn't eaten by the priests was the burnt offering, the whole burnt offering. 
The sin offering and the guilt offering, as they're translated in the ESV, they were actually eaten by the priest. That was their daily food. So the meat of the animal represents the sins of the people, and now the priests are actually consuming that meat that's been filled with sin. They're consuming it, and then it's done away with in their bodies. But Leviticus and Exodus portray this as the priests are carrying the guilt of the people. But God, holy to Yahweh, holy to Yahweh, holy to Yahweh. And the priests are pictures of the people. And it's a constant reminder to God through the picture. Yes, he knows. He knows all this. But it's set up as a a system of a, a pattern of what's going on up in the real where A real altar exists. Isaiah got to go up there. He saw a God, not not just a fire. He saw a God seated on the throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. It's the same word for palace. It filled it. He didn't see a glory cloud. He was in the real, not in the picture. And it's from that real altar where the writer of Hebrews says Jesus' blood was sacrificed. It's from that real altar that that coal was taken and it touched his lips and moved him from unclean to clean. All of this is pointing in that direction. So the priests bear the guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. The, The priests bear it and then they take it before the Lord and God is reminded Holy to Yahweh, no more wrath, no more wrath. It's the means for the priest to serve the people before the Lord without dying, 28.35. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. 28.42-43 You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs and they shall be on Aaron and his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister in the holy place lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute before the Lord. My point here in drawing attention to these statements of death is that God simply made a way for The priests who were representing a sinful nation, he made a way that they could actually have a relationship with God and not die. That's part of the purpose of the tabernacle. And then finally, the means for Israel to know God rightly and to enjoy lasting relationship with him. 29, 44 through 46, a great text. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. God's going to make it holy. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am Yahweh their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. Isn't that amazing? They will know that I redeemed them so that I could have relationship with them. I mean, the, the That's God's intention, that there's something in the soul. If you ask the question, what does God take pleasure in? What does he will? What does he desire? I did this so that I might be their God. Now move this, all of this talk from the picture up to the reality, to what it points to. Not an exodus from slavery in Egypt, but a more ultimate second exodus from slavery to sin. I did that so that I might actually put my presence in your midst. So that I might make you holy and all of it made possible through the death and resurrection of Christ. But our story picks up again. Seven chapters of unpacking how God is going to camp in the midst of Israel and make, have a relationship with them. All of this mercy, mercy, oh, the glory that Moses was experiencing on top of the mountain. 
reveling for 40 days and 40 nights, seeing the real heavenly throne room, the real altar where the sins of all of humanity throughout all ages would ultimately be dealt with. The answer for how the curse would be overcome. He's looking at that, glorying in it, and all the while Israel is down at the base of the mountain committing idolatry. We're going to fly through this. Look with me at the description of Israel's state. The state of their hearts and what it, how it relates to this presence. Why would this story fit in the middle of seven chapters of how to build a tabernacle and it's coming, six chapters that God actually did it. Why is it there? Let's just walk through a few of these verses. You know that they built the golden calf. They built the golden calf and Moses comes down the mountain. He breaks the tablets of stone. Here's what God has to say. Verse 9, that's where we begin. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stubborn people, a stiff-necked people. They're like an oxen that just wants to go its own way rather than following its leader. They're stubborn. So what does God say? It's my intention to start over with you, Moses. Leave me alone that I may destroy them. 33, verse 3. Moses had pled with God and God answered. Amazingly, he answered. Okay, I won't destroy all the people. What are the nations going to say? What are the Egyptians going to say, God, if you redeem them and only do away with Israel in the, right now? For the sake of your name, for the sake of your fame, for the sake of the promises you have made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all that is what Abraham prays and God listens. But here's what God says, 33 verse 3. Okay. Go ahead, go up, you and the people, to the land that I've promised you. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I'm not going with you. Because if I go up among you, I will consume you on your way because you're stubborn. Here in that the seriousness with which God takes sin and how much He deserves us to view sin as zealously as He does. Here in that statement, God's passion to preserve and display His glory and those who take that passion lightly will be consumed by Him. Say to the people, Moses, verse 5 of 33, You're a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Now, something interesting happens. God says, you can go up to the land, but I'm just going to send an angel. I'm not, my glory presence, that fire by night, that cloud by day, it's not going with you. I'll just send an angel, my messenger. But hear how Moses prays, verses 15 and 16. God, if your presence will not go with me, then do not bring us away from Mount Sinai and lead us into the land. If we can't have your presence, then don't move us from here. Why? Why would he talk like that? Because, God, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? Not only me, but all of your people. How will it be known that we're different? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? What's in Moses' mind is the connection between missions and the presence of God. What does that say? 
What? God has the visible signs? What is it that makes Israel distinct according to this text? God's presence, period. Now, why would Israel need to be distinct? Why would the nations, he's praying as if he's going to be able to motivate God at, at one level. He's praying in accordance with God's will in his mind. God, you want us to be distinct. You want the nations to look at us as if we're different. And it's not going to happen unless your presence is with us. Why does Moses think Israel needs to be distinct from the nations? They're God's chosen people. To what end? To display the glory of God. They're to be image bearers. They have the role of what Adam was supposed to have. And to what end? Through you, Abraham, the world will be blessed. If you will hear my voice and keep my covenant and be for me a treasured possession among all the peoples. Remember that from last week? If you, as the middle circle, big circle, the nations, middle circle, Israel, if you will heed my voice and keep my covenant and be for me a treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, then, if you'll live that way, hearing my voice, living as if you're my treasure, if you will keep my covenant, all of a sudden, missions is going to happen. You're going to be a kingdom of priests, just like in the center of your world. You've got a tabernacle, and I'm there, and the priests are mediators so that you can come to me. Now all of the nation is going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, on behalf of the world. And God, that's not going to happen. The purpose of Israel is going to fall if you're not with us because you're the only thing that makes us different. Now let's connect that to what we learned last week in Exodus 20.20. I have come displaying my power, my, my forcefulness, my beauty. I've come in this thunderstorm with power and I've spoken to you clearly so that I might test you, so that you might fear me, so that you will not sin. Moses says, without your presence... We will not be the missionaries you've called us to be. And in Exodus 20 it says, God shows his presence so that he'll create fear, and then that fear is what moves us to holiness. So I put that together. God's presence is the very thing that creates fear within us. What does Paul say? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for... It's the presence of God who's at work in you, in you, to will and to work for his good pleasure. God, if you don't go up with us, we're not going to be different at all. Please, God, show me your glory. Be near to us. And it's in that context that we get the awesome revelation of God. Look at verse 6, 34, verse 5 through 7. Moses said, please show me your glory, God. I will. I will make my goodness pass before you. And I'll proclaim before you my name. He causes. He causes. He causes. I'll proclaim it. I'll unpack what the significance is of my causing all things. I'll unpack it on your behalf. What would it mean? Of everything, a sinful person needs of a God who causes all things. You need Him to cause forgiveness for you. You need Him to cause mercy for you. You need Him to cause steadfast love for you. And Moses hears this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth. And when Moses heard that, God is saying, I can't go with you because I will destroy you. Because I'm holy and you are not. And Moses hears that testimony. He said, God, our only hope as a sinful people, our only hope of change, our only hope of holiness, our only hope of global impact for the sake of your name is if you, a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, if you go with us, God, that is our only hope. Do you hear that, God? For the sake of your name, stay with us. Don't run from us, because apart from you, we can do nothing. That's my marginal reading of verse 9. Moses heard these words, and he quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. God, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, Sovereign One, please let the Sovereign One go in the midst of us because, hear that, because, you please go with us because we're a stubborn people, because we're stiff-necked, be with us and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. There's the Gospel. The gospel of Exodus unpacked in the character of God. And what's amazing? In response to God's prayer, the Lord renews his covenant with a broken Israel. In response to God's prayer, we've got six chapters of tabernacle collecting of the materials and the building of the actual thing. Now turn in your Bibles to the very last verses of the book of Exodus as we close. Chapter 40 of Exodus. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses wasn't able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. The glory of Yahweh filled it. And throughout all of Israel's journeys, Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people would set out. But if the cloud was taken up, then was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day it was taken up. Because the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, the sight in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Let me synthesize today's lesson. Number one. What is the lasting significance of God's holy presence making its place in the middle of Israel? Number one, it stressed the Lord's covenant commitment, His covenantal commitment to His people. God is the great King, not Israel. But He is the great King, meaning that He's the great provider and the great protector, is entering into this relationship with Israel. Yes, they're wicked to the core, but He still renews what the Bible calls the covenant. It's not a relationship of equals. It's a relationship between the great King and an undeserving vassal. The relationship is all based on grace, all by mercy, And the very presence of the tabernacle and God's residence in it says, I'm here for relationship. Number two, it stressed Yahweh's passion for his own witness and reputation. Why? Because Israel's witness and God's reputation go hand in hand. Missions is about worship, and missions isn't going to happen if your presence doesn't go with us. So the very fact that God said, yes, yes, I will go with you. God is declaring, yes, I am jealous for the sake of my name. Yes, I am about the display of my glory. And I've chosen you, amazingly, an imperfect people to do just that. Number three, it stressed the holiness of God's presence and all that he touches. The very compound structure of the tabernacle design was focused on protecting people from God's lethal doses of glory. Don't come in. Common folk, 
No, nobody from the nations could enter into the compound. None of the normal folk could enter into the holy place. And none of the priests who could go in the holy place could go into the holy of holies except one day a year. The very tabernacle structure is protect, protecting people from lethal doses of God's glory. But it's also preserving the distinction between humanity and Yahweh. He is not like us. He is holy. The intensity of holiness increases as one moves up the central spine, moving from the east. Is that the east for you? Moving from the east through the outer court into the holy place, into the holy of holies. Increase gradations of holiness. And in every sphere of increasing holiness, access is strictly regulated and controlled by a complex system of walls, gates, Levitical guardians, and regulations. God is holy. And finally, it really stressed hope for God's people that they, even as sinners, could actually encounter, relate with, enjoy fellowship with the God of the universe. The presence of the tabernacle declares God's special concern for Israel. They alone, among all the nations, enjoy God's kingship. And he's really, really relating with them. And he's really, really relating with us, but in a much more escalated way through the presence of his Son. The commissioning of priests and sacrifices declares God's special willingness to relate to sinners. He sets up a system so that sinful people can enjoy fellowship with him. And when you're reading these 16 chapters at the end of Exodus, don't get bogged down by the details. Just celebrate God's holiness and celebrate that you get to take part in relating to it through the person of his son. The centrality of the altar and the ark, the centrality of the altar here and the centrality of the ark here, they provide powerful symbols of how life can be enjoyed through recognizing the kingship of God and the necessity for provision of a substitute to make atonement for us. That is life. The kingship of God and the necessity of the substitute. That's how we enjoy our Creator. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you've moved beyond a picture to reality. You've moved beyond external salvation from slavery and external law written on tablets of stone to an internalized salvation from slavery to sin and an internalization of your law. But the same presence a real one, manifest the very person of Christ, the Spirit of Christ in us, our hope of glory. Help us not take Him lightly. Help us take Your presence seriously. Help us celebrate what You have done for us. Put Yourself on display. In Christ we ask. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.